0: to turn with me and give our full attention to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 verses 35 through 38. If you're going to use a copy of the scripture under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 687. Last week we began a new study, a more topical textual study on sharing the gospel. Instead of moving through an entire book, which is our usual fashion. We're jumping around to different passages for the next seven weeks, looking at the subject of the commandment that God gives to us that we saw last week to always be ready, always be willing, always be prepared to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the theme, always be prepared. Today we are told by Jesus himself to always be prepared because there is a work that is to be done. There is a work that he calls us to do. But he doesn't simply call us to this work without telling us what this work is and then showing us how we are to do that work. So let's then look at Jesus, our great Savior, to see what it is that we are to be about and how we are to do it. Let's give our full attention to the reading and preaching of God's word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Hear now the word of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands Our Father in heaven, we pause now with our Bibles open, asking that you would clear our minds from any distraction that would keep us from hearing what it is that you are commanding us to do, this work that you call us to do as your children. Remind us of the greatest gift that we have ever been given, And because of that gift, now encourage us and energize us to always be willing and ready and prepared to speak of the hope that's ours in Jesus Christ alone. So open our eyes to behold these wonderful things now we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. The occasion of the celebration was that as long as anyone could remember... The, they had never gone 1 year in the New York or the New Orleans city uh, pool system without some kind of a drowning. And so 200 individuals gathered together, 100 of them certified lifeguards to celebrate 1 year of being free from any drowning in a public pool. It wasn't until the party was just about over and the four on duty lifeguards began to empty the pool that they saw in the deep end, the body, the lifeless body of a clothed individual. Retrieving the body from the water, Jerome Moody, even after giving life support, did not survive 31 years of age. And here they are celebrating a whole year without a disaster, without a death, and in the midst of the very party, surrounded by Certified people that are ready and willing and able to save this individual, they experience death. I think about that story, and I think about the Church of Jesus Christ. I think about how it is that we have been given this wonderful gospel. We speak of the hope that we have often, especially here. We speak of the grace that we have been given by Jesus Christ. We speak of the forgiveness of sin. We looked at that last week from 1 Peter chapter 3, where he who knew no sin took on our sin. He became sin for us so that he could forgive us of our sin, so that the unrighteous would become righteous, that we who uh, are filled with sin could be forgiven of our sin. We who knew, know nothing but sin are freed from that sin. We who love the darkness would be given the light as we find in the gospel. And we're quick to embrace that. We're ready to embrace that. We desire to embrace that. And there is a party to be had, a great celebration to be had, to know that our sins are really forgiven, not by anything that we have done, just as you just sang. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. And we are given this gift of life, eternal, abundant and free, the forgiveness of sin, and we celebrate that. But too often, my friends, we celebrate that in the context of the party inside the building. Instead of then taking this gospel message into the world, as we are commanded to do, we, we want to celebrate together inside and encourage one another, build one another up in our faith, instead of being willing and ready and able to speak of the hope that we have to go into the world with this same gospel that has saved us because there is work to be done. I told you last week, remember on the very cover of our bulletin every week, our philosophy of ministry summary statement, grace upon grace, receiving as a body and responding as believers, and I gave you my confession that I am, I am very quick to camp out on the first part. I like the receiving part. The receiving is a body through the means of grace as we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. The preaching of the word, the singing of his praise, the giving of our gifts. All of this wonderful stuff that God gives to us by his grace and mercy. Receiving. If we have truly received that, if you're here today and you have truly received that then the Savior himself tells you that there is work to be done now in responding as believers, receiving as a body, and now responding as believers. But Jesus now in this passage doesn't simply command us, dictate to us to go into the world and do this, but he lays out his perfect plan for how he is going to use people like you and me to do it, and then not only laying out his plan, but gives us a pattern He gives us an illustration. He does it for us so that we can see it right here in this particular passage. So let me just simply remind you of this verse that you have already heard in our liturgy from 1 John chapter 2. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. We cannot say, beloved, listen, we cannot say, that we are always willing and ready to receive this grace and mercy and be unwilling to respond as believers to take this gospel into the world because of the work that our Savior commands us to do. If you have been given grace, he now commands you to do the work of grace, always being willing, ready, and prepared to speak of the hope that you have. So let's look at it then very briefly. What is Jesus' plan? He gives us that in the first verse. Jesus went through all of the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease. Now like we did last week because we're not preaching through the entire book. Let me set the context for you of where Jesus is. Turn back to the left in your Bible to the end of chapter four of the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of the uh, Gospel... Uh, the end of chapter 4 of of Matthew's gospel, we read this passage that we looked at last week as well. Jesus calls Peter and his brother Andrew, Come, follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. And then look what he says in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. It's the exact same thing that we read at the beginning of our text at the end of chapter 9 Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news and healing every kind of disease so we have these bookends where Jesus repeats the same thing he says this in chapter 4 having said the kingdom of heaven is near come come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and then he says it again at the end of chapter 9 and all in between what we find The preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus healing the sick, and Jesus going about region to region, giving them the gospel, the gospel that was found in him. So at the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 9, what we have is Jesus displaying the plan of salvation, why he has come. He has come to set us free from the bondage of our sin by dying for that sin, raised to new life, so that we too have the hope of life eternal with Him. So all we have to do is look at chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 and see Jesus' plan. And that plan is caught in these three words. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Let's start with teaching. Jesus went throughout the towns and He's teaching in their synagogues, we read. The teaching is different from preaching. It's almost like peanut butter and jelly they you can have peanut butter by itself and you can have jelly by itself but oh my goodness you put peanut butter and jelly together and you're in for a treat a real treat cut the crust off make it nice and soggy with all of the jelly it's like peanut butter and jelly together you can separate the two teaching now look what Jesus says he's teaching or the narrative says that Jesus is teaching in their synagogues teaching different from preaching in this way Teaching is the indicative, it's what is, it's information, it's fact. He's in their synagogue because they have the Old Testament. They have their Old Testament and so Jesus goes into their church, into the synagogue and he is teaching them line by line, precept on precept, what it is that they have in the word of God. He's giving them what is, the indicative, into their synagogue. It's different from preaching, notice there, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom, he's going about village to village and town to town. Preaching is different from teaching. Teaching is the indicative, preaching is the imperative. Teaching is the what is, and preaching is the what are you going to do about that now. Preaching always ought to involve teaching, We open up our Bibles. I ask you to leave that Bible open because we're going to move line by line looking at what it is that we read in this particular text, applying this particular text. But then we don't stop there. Teaching or preaching can't stop with just the instruction, just what is. It has to now come around to the imperative. What are you going to do in response to this? How is your life going to be dramatically changed because of this gospel that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Will you hear the command that the Savior gives to you? The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So preaching always now calls for the response. Here is the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth came... He died for our sin. He was born for the reason of dying. Born to take our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He died for that sin that we might be set free from that sin and alive to all that is good. That's teaching. Now preaching. What are you going to do? You've got to embrace it. You've got to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. It is a response to this gospel ...that Jesus goes now around preaching through every town and village... ...teaching in their synagogues... ...and as He walks the street, He's preaching and teaching. J.I. Packer put it like this. Evangelism is preaching the gospel. Evangelizing is not simply a matter of teaching and instructing... ...and imparting information to the mind. It's more than that. Evangelism includes the endeavor to elicit a response to the truth that's being taught... It is communication with a view to conversion. It's a matter not merely of informing, but also inviting. And here's what we're called to do, friends. We're called to leave this place, to always be willing and ready to go into the world and do the work that God has called us to do, preaching and teaching the good news. Not just simply sharing information about Jesus, but sharing information about Jesus to lead to a response. What are you going to do in response to this Savior who came to die for our sin? The last plan, not only teaching and preaching, but he also is healing every disease, it says at the end of verse 35. He goes around all the towns and the villages, into the synagogues teaching, preaching on the streets, and healing every disease and sickness. Now don't forget who, who's in the passage here. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is fully God and fully man. He, he the, the creator of all things, uh, is not underneath his creation, but he is over his creation. And yet we read all of these wonderful miracle uh, uh, events that take place in the life of Jesus because he is only verifying who he is. He is showing in, in causing the, the lame to stand and to walk and the blind to open their eyes and see and those that have leprosy to be cleansed from their disease. He is, he is verifying that he is the Messiah. He is the one that they've been looking for to come. There are Look at chapter 10, verse 1, the very next, the very next verse. He called the 12 disciples to him and he gave them now authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness as well. So Jesus comes verifying that he is the Messiah. And then Jesus gives the authority to his apostles, to the 12 disciples, that they now have the ability to do the same thing. There are individuals in our world today that, that believe the gift of healing is, continu- continues. Uh, certainly it does. Jesus can do anything that he wants, right? He he is God. If he wants to supernaturally heal us, all he has to do is wave his hand and it's done. Uh, He uses secondary means like nurses and doctors and medicines to bring about healing to our bodies as well. But for certain individuals to claim that they have the, the, the gift of being able to heal another individual, that we oftentimes see especially on certain channels of our television, let me just say this to you, my friends. If I, as, as a minister of the gospel, had the ability to lay my hands on somebody and they would be healed, I would never sit down. I, I would not simply say, okay, we're going to have a healing service the second Tuesday of next week and bring everybody uh, that, that's sick and, and then we'll have a big service. If I love, if I had compassion for people, if I had the ability, why would I not be in every hospital going from bed to bed just laying hands on people and healing them? That's not what Jesus is speaking about here for our context. It is for His context. He's verifying who He is. But then if you just think with me quickly, chapter 10 begins, He gave the authority to His disciples For a continued period of time, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and that passed away, the gift of speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, the healing gifts, all ended at the apostolic era, the close of the apostolic era, when the last apostle, John, died. He had given them the ability to do that for the proclamation of the gospel, to get them out of Jerusalem, so that they would go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, with the ability to proclaim this good news, the good news that Jesus saves. And then Paul comes along now in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and says, now through the church, through the church the manifold wisdom of God is made known. Now it's not made known through certain individuals who have that gift for a temporary period of time, but now through the church, the proclamation of the gospel. So here's application for us today in this way. Not that we're going out preaching and teaching and healing of their disease, but we're going into the world preaching and teaching and we're coming all alongside those that are afflicted, those that are weak, those that are downtrodden, and we're encouraging, we're healing spiritually with the good news of the gospel. As we're living life together, this is why we're focusing on that, on the well this, this, uh, this period of time, this spring. We're coming along side by side, encouraging those that are dealing with illness, those that are dealing with the loss of a job, those that are dealing with children that are wayward or whatever it may be. We're healing them spiritually. We're touching their soul. How? With the good news of the gospel. Iron sharpening iron. Grace upon grace. So here's Jesus' plan. Teaching, preaching, encouraging, healing. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us the pattern for the work, too. That's what follows now in verse 36, 37, and 38. Look what it, how he starts. Verse 36 When he saw the crowd, Jesus' pattern for sharing the gospel with other individuals starts with the fact that he saw them. He looked what was standing right in front of them and he stopped, he paused. And not only stopping and pause, pausing, he was among them. He was going through the villages and the towns because there were lost people in those villages and towns, and he wanted to pause among them, stop among them, to give them the gospel. Boy, this is this is like a brick against the side of my head. I mean, I've, you call me Pastor Zippy for a reason. I I seldom pause and stop. I seldom stop to just look around me to say. Look at the neighbor across the street who's out there wiping down his brand new car on Sunday morning. And apart from the gospel, would I actually walk across the street and pause with this neighbor to give them the gospel? I should. That's the pattern that Jesus gives to us. He saw the crowd. He stopped. He looked. He fixed his eyes upon them because he was among them. Secondly he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them he loved them now pardon the descriptive language here but the greek here for the word compassion literally means from from the uh, to suffer in your bowels graphic I know but that's that's the greek to suffer in your bowels so what it literally translates is this that jesus so had compassion on his elect people that were still apart from the gospel that needed the gospel that were going to respond to the gospel that he ached all the way down in the bottom of his gut It was just a a pain, an agony in the bottom of his deepest part part of his gut that there was actually an individual that was standing apart from him, across from him, who if they were to die, they would be apart from saving grace and they would perish in hell forever. Now, saying that, you're Presbyterians, right? I'm Presbyterian. And we believe in the doctrine called predestination or the doctrine of election. I believe it to be true because the Bible tells me it is true. But if you are here today, my friends, and you think this, if you think, well, the elect is sure, the number is sure, so I don't need to go out into the harvest field. I don't need to go out into the world with the good news because if they are elect, they're going to come to saving faith, right? Wrong. That is not the doctrine of election. We believe that all of the elect are chosen from the foundation of the world as the Bible tells us over and over and over again. But we do not know who the elect are. I can't walk out into the street and see some tattoo on their forehead and say, elect, non-elect. So I go into the world with the gospel And I call on everybody. I sound like an Arminian when I share the gospel. You better listen to what I have to say and you better make a decision. You better decide as if they have the power to do that. They can't. A dead man cannot make himself alive again. But God is giving the gospel to those that he has called from the foundation and using someone as sinful as you and me to do it. Will we pause and have compassion on them? Will I look at my neighbor across the street washing his brand new car on Sunday and have enough love and compassion that I don't, And down in the deepest part of my gut, I ache that if the Savior were to come back today that he would perish for all eternity. His pattern then, he saw them. He had compassion on them. And then look what he does in verse 37. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he sees them, he loves them, but now he's calling on us to think about the lost, to think about them. Because what he is actually telling them is what awaits awaits individuals that are apart from saving grace. They would have read this quite differently than we do, or they would have heard it quite differently than we do. They would have understood Isaiah chapter 17, And they would have understood Joel chapter 3. That where it speaks about the harvest, it speaks about the harvest of individuals for judgment. It talks about bringing in the harvest to separate, to judge. We read the same thing in Revelation 14. They wouldn't have had that one yet. But they certainly had Isaiah and they had Joel. So Jesus' comment would have been received by them that he's talking about the harvest out there is plentiful. There are lots of folks that are out there that are dying apart from saving grace. So think about that. That's what he's saying. Think about them. Think about the soul because of your compassion for them down in the deepest part of your gut that you don't want that individual to perish and to die. But you want it to see bearing fruit. Every time I drive home, I I go down Stonebridge uh, towards Virginia and Adriatica. You know where Adriatica is? And right there on Stonebridge, just before you get to Virginia, are all these grapevines that are growing. Uh, This harvest of grapevines on trellises, as if it mimics something over in some part of the world somewhere. Nobody ever does anything with those grapevines. Every year. They're the same. Nobody ever comes in in the late summer after harvest and trims them, prunes them all back just to the sticks so that they sprout out the next year and bear wonderful grapes. They are just sitting there and they're producing something that falls and dies and nobody does anything with it. And that's what the church is doing, beloved. If we are not taking the gospel into the world, reaping the harvest. Reaping the harvest that is before us because of a deep down in the bottom of our gut, love and compassion, that we don't want to see individuals perish. I'm not going to perish, because God has been gracious enough to give me the gospel, and if he has given it to you, we ought to want to give this away time and time again. Think about that neighbor across the street. I tell you this, if you were to think about a stock option or Uh, which house to buy this one or that one, or which car got the best uh, economy and all that. We think about stuff like that, don't we? We think a lot about that. Spreadsheets of pros and cons and these things and those things. We give a lot of attention, a lot of thought to stuff like that. But what about the person next to you in your cubicle? Well, I think he's a Christian. Well, shouldn't you know if he's a Christian? Shouldn't you know because you're, you're, you're burning down in your gut to tell him about what it is that Christ has done. So you're asking questions. Asking questions to come to conclusions. He saw them. He had compassion on them. He said, look, I want you to think about them. The harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of lost people out there. And then look what he does in verse 38, his last pattern. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers. Pray, pray, pray for them. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, so now you may be saying this. Oh, is that where you were going? All of this you're saying, now all that's required of me is to pray? Oh, well, Pastor, I already do that. I love the lost. I pray for them all the time. In the very next chapter, though, friends, the very ones that he calls to pray are the very ones that he sends out. Pray that you would remind me of this beautiful gospel, that I was dead in my sin and my transgression. But Christ made me alive again. He took my sin. He who knew no sin became sin and died for that sin. God demonstrated his love for me in this. When I was still a sinner, Christ Jesus died for me. And thinking about that, I began to pray Lord, seal this, seal this to my heart, seal this to my mind. And then in doing so, he says, All right, now that you understand, now that you have received, it's time for you to respond. It's time for you to go into the harvest. Pray that he will send you out. We ought to be praying that the Lord would make us those individuals who love the lost so much that all we want to do is to give to them the good news of the gospel, what has been given to us. It's not about guilt, friends. That's what I told you last week. Sharing the gospel is not guilting, it's not me standing up here saying, doggone it, if you don't do this, how could you call yourself a Christian? You ought to have all kinds of notches on your belt from all of the people that you saved. It's not that at all. It's about affection. It's about love. It's about grace. That God has lavished His forgiveness, His grace and mercy on you. And if you have received that grace and mercy, then down in the bottom of your gut, it ought to burn. I'm looking for someone that I can share the gospel with. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Remember? Fly fishing. That ought to be our... I think think a lot about that. I can't get to the river fast enough. But I won't even walk across the street to speak of my the hope that I have to my neighbor. The man who says I know him but does not do what he says is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Out of a response to this affection that God has lavished on us, friends, let's let's speak of the hope that we have. Let's get into the world and, and do the work he's commanded us to do. I want to share with you in closing this article that I read uh, from Leadership Magazine. I I've, I've shared it with you before, but this is so perfect. Listen, listen to this story. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new life-saving crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those that were saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to the sea on life-saving missions so they hired lifeboat crews to do that work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. About this time a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in loads and loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little ways which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same challenges that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a new club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most people just drown. Wow. Is that not a picture of the of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ many times? That it's all of the celebration on the inside instead of the excitement of going out and s- speaking of the hope always willing and ready to preach, to teach, to heal because we see them, we're among them and we love them and not only love them but we think about their perishing And so because of that, we pray, Lord, give me opportunities to reach that neighbor across the street, my neighbor in the cubby next to me, wherever it may be. Friends, if you have the gospel planted in your heart and in your life and in your mind, then it's there for you to give it away. And you do it by the power of the Spirit who brings the dead back to life again, like he did you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a beautiful gospel you have given to us. A gospel where you have cleansed us of our sin, forgiven us of that sin, lifted us to high and lofty places. And now, Father, give us a work to do. I pause, Lord, to simply pray for the saints of Redeemer Church, me included. Lord, that you would give us a passion to see this gospel go forth that there would be a line at the font to receive water baptism from those who are confessing their sin for the first time and reaching for Christ, the gospel that he gives. Lord, prepare us, change our hearts, change our minds, change our attitudes, change our vision, our focus. And Lord, let us see the work of this gospel. The very fact that the sun came up this morning means that the last of your elect have not yet bowed the knee. And so you are calling us to get out there and do the work. So, Father, equip us to do it by your Spirit, please, we pray. And make us faithful, obedient, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.